Come follow me, the Savior said, then let us in his footsteps tread. For thus alone can we be one with God's own This is Lexi Austin, and you are listening to The Savior Said, a weekly podcast dedicated to my musings and observations on the New Testament and the Gospel of Jesus Christ. I will be using the Come Follow Me curriculum of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This curriculum can be found at comefollowme.churchofjesuschrist.org. For more content, follow me on Facebook at facebook.com slash thesaviorsaid. Hey guys, welcome back. This is the episode for October 28th through November 3rd. And if you're listening to this here at the beginning of October, yes, we are really far ahead. But that's again because General Conference is going to be this weekend and it's going to be awesome and I'm so excited. But once that happens, next week's episode is going to be a conference rehash. I'm going to go over my favorite stuff from conference and we'll kind of talk about that. And then that little extra episode is going to put us back on track. So even though this sounds like it's really far ahead because it's November, it's not going to be that far ahead. It'll be okay. All right. But anyways, October 28th through November 3rd, the title is Be Thou an Example of the Believers. And guys, I have to tell you, like this week I was like, oh, these little epistles, they're so short and sweet and easy to read and understand and everything like that. And then I started going in and making notes and I made like six pages of notes before I even hit come follow me. So (laughs) we're going to go through some of my thoughts first because a lot of my thoughts actually come out and come follow me. You'll see kind of how it rolls. But first off, the thing that makes these epistles so much different from the other epistles that we've studied is Paul's other epistles were addressed to congregations. Whereas these epistles are addressed specifically to individuals, and so they contain a little bit more of Paul's personality, I feel. Um, We get some of his sense of humor and just kind of, I don't know, it just feels more like personal instead of, you know, the formal stiff kind of Paul, I guess, that we've seen a little bit. So the first thing I want to do, let's sister frizzle it up a little bit and let's talk about like, you know, where these epistles are coming from, who they're being written to, all that stuff. We need the background information so we can understand a little bit. Also because I think it's interesting. We're going to include it because I think it's fascinating. Okay, so the history of these epistles, first of all, from the Bible Dictionary about Timothy and Titus. These epistles are known as the pastoral epistles. Okay, pause. So why are they known as the pastoral epistles? Because they have to do with shepherding and ministering to the congregations, the young fledgling church. And so shepherding, sheep, pastures, pastoral, that's why they're called the pastoral epistles. They deal mainly with questions relating to the internal discipline and organization of the church with the ideal of the pastoral office. Again, the ministering office, right? We learn from them that Paul was set free during his first imprisonment in Rome, and he revisited his old friends in Greece and Asia Minor. During this interval of freedom, 1 Timothy and the epistle to Titus were written. All right, and the New Testament made easier. One of my favorite New Testament commentary, and you guys are going to find out why later on in this episode. Um, There's a rant coming up. Just get ready. Um, Buckle yourselves in. But anyways, New Testament made easier says that the epistles were written somewhere between 64 and 65 AD. All right, so let's start off with Timothy. Who was Timothy? Well, he was the son of a Greek father and a Jewish mother, so he had that whole, like, Greek citizenship thing, but Jewish background thing coming, you know, together that Paul kind of did too, you know? So I see like a very big similarity between him and Paul and their backgrounds. I think maybe that they really understood each other, which was why they were so close. Um, He was circumcised by Paul in order that he might be of greater use for evangelistic work among 
among the Jews. He was the one that we talked about in Acts 16.3 that was circumcised, not because he was under the law of Moses, but because the Jews would be more accepting of him if he was. So um, that's a pretty big sacrifice, I have to say, that he probably went through for the gospel. So go, Timothy. All right. He was also spoken up by Paul as his son in the faith. You know, we don't know if Paul had children. My guess is that he did not, but he considered Timothy his son, which I think says a lot about Timothy, the kind of person that he was, and the relationship that he and Paul had. We know that Timothy was at Philippi, at Berea, he was sent to Thessalonica, and he was with Paul at Corinth, then he was sent to Macedonia, to Corinth again, and he was with Paul in Macedonia when he wrote 2 Corinthians. He was again at Corinth, he followed Paul to Troas, and at Rome, and then at Ephesus, and Paul wished him to come see him in Rome in prison as well. He was set at liberty at one point, we read in Hebrews 13. We don't know where he was imprisoned or jailed or anything. We just know that he was set free, and we read that in Hebrews 13, 23. Timothy was perhaps Paul's most trusted and capable assistant, which we read in Philippians 2, 19 through 23. So Timothy was really special to Paul, um, and so I'm kind of you know glad that we get these letters about Timothy, or that Paul wrote to Timothy and kind of get to see a little bit of their relationship. Now, in 1 Timothy, the Bible Dictionary says, In the course of his travels, after his first imprisonment, Paul came to Ephesus, where he left Timothy to check the growth of certain unprofitable forms of speculation. Basically, sketchy stuff was happening in the early church, right? And so he left Timothy there with the intention that he would return and Timothy would kind of keep things under control until he got back. So, I mean, that really shows the amount of trust that Paul had in this kid. I was going to say kid. I don't know how old Timothy actually was, but I guess I think of him as a kid because Paul calls him his son. So um, that's the amount of trust that Paul had in this kid, um, that he could leave him there where sketchy stuff was going on and trust him to like keep it under control until he got back. And so as Timothy is waiting for Paul to come back, Paul writes this epistle to give him counsel and encouragement in the fulfillment of his duty. So that's 1 Timothy. 2 Timothy has a little bit of a different tone. It's um, a little bit sadder, I think. This epistle was written during Paul's second imprisonment. So he's back in Rome and he's back in prison shortly before his martyrdom. It contains the apostle's last words and shows the wonderful courage and trust with which he faced his death. So we're going to talk a little bit more about the Apostle Paul's death in a minute. But we're going on to who was Titus, because we're going to read about Titus too. Titus was a Greek. He also was apparently converted by Paul at Antioch, we think maybe. We read that in Titus 1.4. He attended the conference at Jerusalem about circumcision that we read about in Galatians 2. He was probably with Paul on his third missionary journey. He was definitely sent by Paul to Corinth as the bearer of 1 Corinthians. He then returned to Paul in Macedonia and was again sent to Corinth with 2 Corinthians and with instructions about a collection for the poor in Jerusalem. Remember, we talked about that whole charity, cheerful heart giving, all that stuff like that. After this, we have no mention of him for eight years. Eight years, he just disappears. We're not really sure where he went. At the conclusion of Paul's first imprisonment at Rome, Titus joined him at Ephesus, and they went together to Crete, where Titus remained and where he received a letter from Paul with instructions about his work, asking him to come to Nicopolis. Later on, he was sent on a mission to Dalmatia, which, yes, Dalmatia, which sounds like Dalmatians. It's the area of Croatia where Dalmatians were, the breed was first raised. So, yeah, he was sent to the place where Dalmatians come from. 
Okay, <laughs> that's what I learned about Titus. All right, who is Philemon? We don't really know a whole lot about Philemon. Um, his epistle is a little shorter. It's kind of one of those quirky epistles. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But here's Philemon. Philemon was a man. He was from Colossae. He was converted by Paul. He was the owner of the slave Onesimus. And Onesimus had run away and joined Paul and then was sent back by him with a letter to his master saying, hey, take this guy back and don't just take him back as a slave. Take him back as a brother. And so the New Testament made it easier has a little cute commentary on this. They said, this brief letter consists of just one chapter and gives us a rather delightful insight into Paul's tenderness, pleasant sense of humor, and spunk. I love that because there are many, many words that can describe Paul, and spunky is definitely one I think that would apply to him. Yes. Okay, so going on to something a little bit more somber now, um, let's talk about the martyrdom of Paul. So Paul was in prison during the extreme persecution that the Christians were facing in Rome between 65 to 69 A.D., and the date of Paul's death, no one is really sure, but it was believed to have happened after the great fire of Rome, you know, that Nero supposedly was fiddling during or whatever, but before the last year of Nero's reign in 68. According to several apocryphal books, that means like early church texts that are not canonized, that are not part of scripture, Paul was beheaded in Rome. A legend later developed that his martyrdom occurred at the Aque Silvae on the Via Laurentina. According to this legend, after Paul was decapitated, his severed head rebounded three times, giving rise to a source of water each time it touched the ground, which is now how the place earned its name, San Paolo al Tre Fontaine. I'm sure I said that wrong in Italian. In English, it means St. Paul at the Three Fountains. There's three fountains there, and that's supposedly where they came from. I know it's kind of gory. I'm sorry, but, you know, this is a culture, again, where fairy tales come from because they believed in these miraculously, like, happenings. So, um, Apparently, that's where those three fountains come from. Also, according to legend, Paul's body was buried outside the walls of Rome at the second mile of the Via Austinesis, I think, on the state owned by a Christian woman named Lucina. And it was here in the 4th century that the Emperor Constantine the Great built a first church. The present-day Basilica of St. Paul outside the walls was built there in 1800. So... I hate that that was the end of Paul. Um, but, you know, God is amazing that he uses horrible things, even the death of a beloved servant. He uses that to his good. And I'm sure that the martyrdom of Paul rallied the Christians around there in the early church and it strengthened them for a time because they joined together in this cause. And it was probably at a time where they were really suffering under the rule of Nero and the persecution of Nero. You know, so... Gosh, it just had to be a really, really rough, awful time for them. I don't even like thinking about it. But Paul left us with quite a legacy. Um, the Bible Dictionary says, It is Paul's writings that we learn the most about the New Testament church, but it must be remembered that they were written for the use of men who are already members of the church. The New Testament presupposes on the part of its readers at least an elementary knowledge of the gospel truth. Paul's life is characterized by an extraordinary zeal for the Lord, and his greatest contribution is what he tells us about Jesus. That's his contribution, is his testimony of Christ. You know, we can get distracted by all kinds of cultural stuff that he included, but he was addressing a lot of the culture that was happening there in the early church. Um, you know, I'm sure there's cultural stuff now that's happening in our church that thousands of years from now, people will be like, oh, why, are they, why are they talking about this? Why are they talking about piercings? Why are they talking about tattoos? Why are they talking about coffee and tea? And like, you know, so I know that there's going to be stuff like, you know, thousands of years from now that people are going to look back and not understand kind of the same way 
that I look back at the epistles and I don't understand some of it. Um, and that leads us into the next section, which is not in Come Follow Me, but I really felt like I needed to address it because I'm like, Paul, my dude, you know I'm a fan. Why you got to be like this about women? Like, I'm reading through the epistles, and I get to 1 Timothy 2, and, like, I had to put my scriptures down and walk away because I was so mad at the things that Paul was saying. I was like, Paul, oh, man, I hate that he says this. Okay, anyways, but we're going to explain it. We're going to talk about how (laughs) we can make it better. Okay, I've got some good interpretations of it. I've got some good quotes for you. Um, But let's just start off with the basic text. The basic text, as we have it now in 1 Timothy 2, starting in verse 9, here's what it says, 9 through 15. In like manner also, that women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with braided hair, or gold, or pearls, or costly array, but which becometh women professing godliness with good works. Let the woman learn in silence, with all subjugation. But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. For Adam was first formed, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. Notwithstanding, she shall be saved in childbearing, if they continue in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety. Okay, that's heavy stuff. That's the stuff that I was like, oh, I can't believe he said this. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about this. Okay, so the New Testament made easier. That gospel commentary, you know, you can get it at Desert Book. I got it from Amazon. You can get it anywhere. Pretty much saved me on this because I was like, I am just not well with what Paul has said here. And so it came through and gave me some other ideas. So just starting off with verse 9 which talks about, you know, women should adorn themselves in modest apparel. They shouldn't braid their hair. They shouldn't wear gold or pearls, which being a Southern girl, like I literally wear my pearls at least once a week. It's what we do. We love our pearl necklaces here. So I'm like, Paul, Paul, you're stepping on my Southern. Oh, bud. Okay. So again, New Testament made easier. It is obviously that Paul's counsel regarding women's hairstyles, jewelry, etc. in verse nine is given in the context of local culture. It should not, for instance, be taken out of context and used to demand that women in our culture not be allowed to braid their hair or wear pearls. Perhaps braided hair in the local culture in which the Ephesian saints lived represented a sinful lifestyle, just as a woman with a shaved head represented that she was an adulteress in Corinth. Okay, so I'm a little bit easier with that. Okay, so just as an overall to these verses... From the New Testament made easier, it says, These verses can become a source of contention and hurt if not read in the larger context of the scriptures and the words of the modern prophets. Pause. So, I think it is so important, that phrase there, that they can be a large contention of hurt if we cling to an ancient document from 2,000 years ago, the cultural information from it. I mean, we need to cling what's truthful and what's right in there and, you know, the information about Christ and the gospel and things like that. But the cultural stuff, when it has been superseded by a modern prophet of God, like that's who we need to follow. And so the words of the modern prophets and how they look at women and how they tell us to treat women and the respect that they have for women, I think that's really what we need to look at instead of this women need to stay silent, women need to stay silent, women need to stay silent. Because women don't need to stay silent. Women have great things to say, amazing things to say, and we need them just as much in the church as we need men. And I think we as a church are starting to get that. I'm recording this the same week that the revelation came out about women 
women being able to become witnesses at baptisms and other ordinances. And I love that so much. I am so excited about that, that women are going to be able to be part of those ordinances for their children, for their loved ones. Now, I'm just waiting for the day when women will be able to hold their babies while they're being blessed. Like, I would love to have that happen um, sometime in my lifetime. I'm hopeful that that will happen as well. All right, going back into New Testament made easier. It says, specifically verses 11 and 12, do not reflect the teachings of modern prophets and apostles with respect to women and their vital role in our society and the church, including teaching and leading in many ways. And pause. Okay, so this is one of the things that I was like so upset with Paul about because I'm like, Paul, my dude, like you literally talk about women leading in the church. You talk about women teaching in the church or prophesying, I guess is the word that he uses a lot, prophesying in the church. He counts women among the followers multiple times. He seeks women's help a lot. And then he comes and tells them to be silent. And I can't mesh these two different opinions from Paul together. Like, why are you telling women to be silent, but then you're praising them in like another epistle for prophesying well? I mean, I just... Ugh, Paul, he's making me pull my hair out a little bit on this one. Unpause. Back to New Testament made easier. Therefore, we are left to assume that Paul was counseling Timothy with respect to rather drastic local problems where women were being very contentious or exercising unrighteous dominion over men. Specifically see the phrase, usurp authority over the man, as that may be a clue as to what was going on in the Ephesus ward. So that makes sense. If you had women or specifically maybe even a woman that was trying to take things over and run things her way, you know, trying to usurp authority, proper priesthood authority, maybe Paul was giving Timothy a little bit of like a pep talk, like, okay, you can go on in, you can tell the saints how things should be run, um, kind of, you know, what everybody's roles should be. Maybe that's what's going on. Maybe he was giving Timothy this letter so he could take it in and be like, hey, sister Pushy McPusherson, look, you're not supposed to be up like on top of everyone. You need to back on down. We have different roles for different reasons, that kind of thing. Again, from the New Testament made easier. Like, y'all, I promise like the next 10 minutes are probably going to come from that that commentary because it's so good on this. All right. So it says a possible interpretation of verses 11 and 12. If we go back in and we look at, you know, some of the context and things like that. 11. Let the woman learn to listen rather than being contentious and constantly interrupting without proper respect towards local priesthood leaders. But I, Paul, do not allow a woman to take what properly belongs to another, to domineer, but to be in silence, meaning not to be meddling in the affairs of others. Okay, I'm okay with that context. I'm okay with that kind of interpretation of this. Because, yeah, if you have a woman that's kind of, I guess, being bossy and pushing everyone around and taking things over, yeah, maybe someone needs to step up and say something. If she's meddling in the affairs of others, oh, we all know people in our ward that meddle in the affairs of others. We all know, we all know people in our lives that meddle in the affairs of others. I think that may be part of our culture, too. But just because we love each other and we want to be involved in each other's lives, but there needs to be a healthy, like, step back where, you know, we're not taking over people's lives, I guess, or judging is a a big part of meddling, I think, in the affairs of others. All right. So verses 13 through 14, let's go back into them. This is all about Adam and Eve. Okay. So in 13, for Adam was first formed and then Eve and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. Okay. Oh, this is a doozy. Okay. Like this, this is where I had to stop reading and like walk away. Okay. So here we go. New Testament made easier. Make, Make this better for me. New Testament made easier. Here's what they say. 
For many centuries, in many cultures, verses 13 through 15 have sometimes been used by men as scriptural justification for the abuse of women. Not okay. Many cultures and religions criticize and condemn Eve for her role in the fall of Adam and Eve. Our true gospel teaches us great respect for Eve and her role in furthering the purposes of God and making it possible for us to come to earth. Eve was no doubt deceived in some ways, as indicated in verse 14. Perhaps Satan deceived her into believing that mortality and raising children would not ever be difficult. Perhaps he fooled her into believing that it was not that hard to cook for that many people, or to deal with 27 children who all have the stomach flu at the same time, or to help Adam prepare a family home evening lesson and activity when she was bone-weary from having been up with sick children nightly for two weeks. Whatever the case, we are taught that Eve was actually not completely deceived when it came to the choice presented to her and Adam in the Garden of Eden. In Moses 4.6, we read that Satan sought to deceive Eve. Sought means that he tried to. It implies that Lucifer was not completely successful. All right, pause. Listen to this, guys, because this is so, so important. Um, I had a friend who told me a couple weeks ago she went to a wedding at a different congregation here in the South and that they read all these verses about Adam and Eve and, you know, basically telling the wife that she was under complete subjugation to her husband because Eve had sinned, you know, all women had sinned, and, you know, she was property of her husband. I mean, it was like really archaic kind of stuff. And my friend was telling me, she's like, you know, I couldn't believe, like, what a better view we had of Eve than like the rest of the Christian world. And for the longest time, I have really felt really strongly about Eve. I think, and this is just gospel according to Lexi, honest and truly, I think Eve knew. Maybe not entirely. I don't think she had the whole package there. I don't think she like knew 100%, but I think she had an inkling towards it. I also think that there is an innate desire in women, most women, I would say, I know there's some exceptions to this, but I think there's an innate desire in most women, a drive even, to be able to have children. That mothering instinct that we have. And you know, as someone who's infertile, I feel it a lot of times very frustrating because I have that drive to take care of kids and to love kids and to nurture and to raise life. And, you know, I'm not able to fulfill that. But I feel a kinship with Eve because she was probably in a similar situation. You know, she knew something was missing from her life and she felt that drive and that desire to bring life into the world. And she was able to do something about it. So she did. I don't think she knew exactly what she was signing up for, but I think she knew enough to make that choice. And I am so glad she did. And she set the example for us. And she set into motion a beautiful series of events that led to us being here, that led to our Savior coming. And it was a very courageous role model to me in the way that she used her agency. All right, back to our commentary. The Apostle John A. Widso explains this as follows. Such was the problem before our first parents, to remain forever at selfish ease in the Garden of Eden, or to face unselfishly tribulation and death in bringing to pass the purposes of the Lord for a host of waiting spirit children. They chose the latter. This they did with open eyes and minds to the consequences. This is an apostle of the Lord saying this, guys. The memory of their former estates may have been dimmed, but the gospel had been taught them during their sojourn in the Garden of Eden. The choice that they made raises Adam and Eve to preeminence, among all who have come to earth. In the Encyclopedia of Mormonism, under the topic of Eve, we are taught, Satan was present to tempt Adam and Eve, much as he would try to thwart others in their divine missions. And he sought also to beguile Eve, for he knew not the mind of God. Wherefore, he sought to destroy the world. That's Moses 4.6. Eve faced the choice between selfish ease and unselfishly facing tribulation and death. 
as befit her calling, she realized that there was no other way and deliberately chose mortal life so as to further the purpose of God and bring children into the world. All right, so that kind of explains it a little bit. Let's keep going. Verse 15, Notwithstanding, she shall be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety. Okay, so... I know you guys came to like this podcast today expecting to talk about Paul and all the stuff here, but this is like a total tangent that I've gone off on. But it's because those those particular scriptures just shook me so much this week. But I've often wondered why did the Garden of Eden have to happen? Why couldn't God just start like shooting, you know, spirit children down to earth? Like why what was the point? And I think in my mind I have finally come to the conclusion that God never moves away from us. And for children to come to earth we had to willingly take a step away from him. And so Adam and Eve were set up in a kind of a catch-22 situation. You know, if they stayed there in the Garden of Eden forever, they wouldn't have children. They'd be, you know, happy. But could they really be happy if they didn't know sadness? And could they really know joy if they never knew pain and death and things like that? They were in a state of just kind of like, meh, right, in the Garden of Eden. And so they had the choice to stay there or to transgress the law and choose to come to earth. And that's what they did. They chose to transgress the law and come to earth. And I think that was the step away from our Father in Heaven that made them mortal, that brought us all to pass, and brought the entire plan of salvation to pass. And I am so grateful for their long-sightedness and, you know, that drive that they felt to do that, the bravery that encouraged that it must have taken. I, again, I'm, I believe firmly that they were much more aware of what they were doing than, oh, look, here's an apple. I think I'll eat it because a snake told me to, right? I, I think it's, it was much deeper than that. Um, also, I think it's important to note, going back into First T- Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, that if we look at the Joseph Smith translation, there's a significant change to verse 15. It changes the word she to they. Thus, the verse applies to Adam and Eve, not just Eve in a subservient role. So in 15, it reads, Notwithstanding, they shall be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety. Again, saved in childbearing? Of course they're going to be saved in childbearing because their progeny, their children, are going to go on to have Christ in their lineage. So by them having children and their children having children, over the generations eventually Christ would be born and be able to have the atonement, and they will literally be saved through having children. I mean, that's that verse then takes on a whole new meaning, um, and it becomes really beautiful. You know, they continue in faith and charity and holiness. And then that salvation comes. Okay, so rant over. <laughs> that was just my little um, background history on First Timothy chapter 2 and also the history of the various Pauline epistles that we are studying this week. So now we can actually go into Come Follow Me and see what it says about the Pauline epistles this week. Y'all, I needed to take just a little break (laughs) to get calmed down before we jumped right into Come Follow Me. So um, the first section of Come Follow Me is about 1 Timothy 4 verses 10 through 16. And it's titled, If I am an example of the believers, I can lead others unto the Savior and his gospel. It says Timothy was relatively young, but Paul knew that he could be a great leader despite his youth. What counsel did Paul give to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, 10 through 16? Then also see Alma 17 and 11. And 
talking about Paul knowing that he could be a great church leader even despite his youth, you know, I think back to when Christ called his apostles. We've talked in several episodes about how young I think they actually were. You know, I think they may have been like teenagers when he called them. And I think that the youth of our church actually have a lot to offer. Um, There's lots of different talents that they have. They have their own life experiences. And the ones that I know of, at least my ward, are very, very valiant. And they're really good examples to me of what it means to be Christ-like and to be a follower of Christ. So I think youth doesn't mean anything. Yeah, those of us who are a little bit older, we may have more like stories and stuff to talk about to like emphasize gospel points, but the youth of our ward and the youth of our church are our future and they have a great future ahead of them. All right, so let's look at the counsel that Paul gave to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, 10 through 16. Let's read it, okay? For therefore we both labor and suffer reproach, because we trust in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially those that believe. Let these things command and teach. Let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example of the believers in word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Till I come, give attendance to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Neglect not the gift that is in thee, which was given thee by prophecy with the laying on of hands of the presbytery. Meditate upon these things, give thyself wholly to them, that thy profiting may appear to all. Take heed unto thyself, and unto the doctrine continue in them, for in doing this thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. And then in the Book of Mormon, Alma 17.11, And the Lord said unto them also, Go forth among the Lamanites, thy brethren, and establish my word. Yet ye shall be patient in long-suffering afflictions, that ye may show forth good examples unto them in me. And I will make an instrument of thee in my hands unto the salvation of many souls. So Come Follow Me asks, how can this counsel help you lead others to the Savior and his gospel? Well, I want to talk about a couple different phrases that stood out to me in these um, different verses. Going back to 1 Timothy 4, 10 through 16, in verse 10, it says, we trust in the living God. And I love that so much. Just the phrase, the living God, it just... I think is beautiful, but also because of the culture that they were in, so many people worshipped idols and so many people worshipped, you know, these false gods, you know, all the different Greek mythology and Roman mythology and things like that, that Paul is making the differentiation between them who are fake and made up and dead and a living God who is alive and moving and shaping our paths actively for our good. And he even says, who's the savior of all men, especially those that believe. So I really love that he made that emphasis that God is living. Another verse that I really like in here is, be thou an example of the believers. And you know, everywhere we go, people who know that we're members of the church or that even just that we're Christians watch us and they watch what we do. And I think it's important that we are an example of the believers for them and um, both in word, in the conversations that we have, the topics that we talk about, in our charity, in the spirit that we have about us. People will notice the spirit about you in faith and in purity. And then 13, it says, till I come, give attendance to reading. So I love that. I underlined it just because give attendance to reading. As a librarian, I feel like this is very important. You need to read. So, you know, there's that. All right, and in 14, it says, Neglect not the gift that is in thee. And I think it's so important for us to know our gifts and know the different things that our Father in Heaven has blessed us with, the different talents. Because of those talents, He can use us in different ways. I think we have each been blessed with those different abilities, and we need to use those to the best of our ability to serve the Lord. So think about the individual gifts that you've been given. And I posted something to the the Savior Said Facebook page earlier this week that kind of talks about this. Um, It's a little infographic, and it says, Some talents shine in the spotlight. Singing, playing sports, speaking, teaching, 
but others are more subtle. Planning, creating, problem solving, nurturing, writing, empathizing, researching, and listening. Your talents are needed. Your gifts are valuable. You don't need a spotlight to shine. So I want want you to think about the things that make you special, that make your personality unique. How can those be strengthened by the Lord and, you know, put to work in his kingdom? And if you don't know what your talents and gifts are or you're struggling to find them, I'd say pray about it. Ask Heavenly Father to show you your strengths. Because, you know, if men come unto him, he will show us our weaknesses. Surely he can also show us our strengths, right? The things that he wants us to use to bless his children. Yeah, he will totally show you that. So if you're struggling to find gifts and talents, I would say definitely talk to your Father in heaven. So going back to this, to 1 Timothy 4, in 16 he says, In doing this thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. And I find this to be very true, is that when I am working and trying to teach others the doctrine of Christ, I find my own testimony strengthened. So in that way, I'm saving myself and then also those who are listening to whatever it is that I'm saying. So I believe in that fully. And then we go into the Book of Mormon. And I have to say, I loved the contrast that we had here between Paul's writing and the Book of Mormon. And it made me realize like how simple and precious the truths of the Book of Mormon are. Because everything that Paul just laid out, yes, there's truth in it. And yes, there's beauty in it. The Book of Mormon, the selection from Alma, is so simple. And it's got a lot of the same stuff in it, but it's just simple to understand, simple to read. I'm very grateful for that. So here it is, Alma 1711. And the thing I underlined was, ye shall be patient and long suffering and afflictions. Okay, so be patient in hard stuff. We can do hard things. That ye may show forth good examples unto them in me. And I will make thee an instrument of thee in my hands unto the salvation of many souls. So again, show your good example. You know, preach the gospel, use words when necessary. That St. Francis of Assisi quote. Um, I love that quote a lot. And then he'll make an instrument of you, whatever your gifts and talents are, into bringing many people unto him. And I really love that. All right, the next section is 2 Timothy, and it says, God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power, and of love, and of a sound mind. 2 Timothy 1.7, and I actually have, um, I made a little painting a couple years ago, and I put it in my son's bathroom so that he sees it every day when he's in there, um, just to remind him, you know, God has not given us a spirit of fear, because there's lots of anxiety in our house, you know, (laughs) that's kind of how we roll, but that's not the spirit of God, you know, he gives us power and love and a sound, meaning calm mind, and that's what we need to seek out. Come Follow Me says, 2 Timothy is believed to be the last epistle that Paul wrote, and it seems that he knew his time on earth was short. See 2 Timothy 4, 6-8. And here's what it says. For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord the righteous judge shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. And so he's fought the good fight. He's finished his course. He knows the end is coming, which is really sad, I think. Um... You know, I have mixed emotions about Paul now after our Come Follow Me study of him, but I am sad to see him go. You know, I'm sad for any follower of Christ and active advocate of Christ to see them go. So um, this was kind of a sad moment to read, but Paul is also knows what's coming for him after this life and knows that he's giving his life to the Lord. And Come Follow Me asks, as you read this epistle, think about how Timothy must have felt knowing that he might soon be without his trusted mentor and leader. And I was like, oh, poor Timothy. You know, he 
he's obviously very young. He probably felt scared, um, you know, that without a leader, a strong leader to lean on, he was going to have to take up a lot of that work. And that was probably a really scary prospect. He probably felt incredibly overwhelmed. The task in front of him was monumental. I mean, to try and fill Paul's place there in the different congregations that he was serving, that's monumental. That would be really hard to do. I'd feel very overwhelmed. And then he also probably thought he wasn't good enough. And maybe that's just me projecting onto Timothy because I feel a lot of times when I'm asked to do stuff for the Lord, I often come to my first thought is I can't do that. I'm not good enough. You know, I'm not good enough. Whatever talents you've given me aren't good enough. I can't serve good enough. I'm just not good enough. And that's like my first thought. And so I wonder if Timothy may have felt something similar. You know, Lord, you've put me in the spot, but I'm not good enough. I'm not like Paul. And the Lord probably looked at him and said, you're right. You're not like Paul, but you are Timothy. And I've given you specific gifts and with me, you will be enough, you know? And so I just know that because that's kind of what I felt in my own life too. So, um, Timothy, I feel you, bro. All right. What did Paul say to encourage him? He said a lot of really good things. Um, you know, just kind of telling him what was up and, you know, things to watch out for and stuff. But the thing that really stuck out to me to answer the question that come follow me asks about what do Paul's words teach you about facing your own trials and fears is second Timothy three fourteen, And it says, but continue thou in the things which thou has learned and has been assured of no Knowing of whom thou hast learned them. So to me, that says, Lexi, you know what's right. You've been taught the gospel. You know the gospel. You know the truth of the gospel. You know your Savior. You know his love for you. Continue in that. You know, be assured of that, knowing where that testimony came from, the Holy Ghost, and continue to live that testimony. And whenever things get rough or you do get overwhelmed or you don't feel good enough, lean on that testimony of your Savior, of his grace, of his mercy, and of the power of our Lord that he has to see us through pretty much any situation. (laughs) In my notes, actually underneath the question, what do Paul's words teach you about facing your own trials and fears? I have in capital letters, trust. Like, that's what they teach me. Trust in the Lord. Trust in Him and His plan and His process and everything that He has in preaching the gospel. All right. So, real quick, we've got one last section I really want to touch on. It's Philemon. And it's followers of Christ forgive one another. And, you know, the whole story of Philemon with him accepting the slave back but accepting him as a brother. It's kind of just an interesting story. And it says, have you ever been in a situation when someone sought your forgiveness? Well, the first thing that popped into my mind, you know, I'm an elementary school librarian. And so, sometimes... I have to get on to kids who are not behaving well in class. Like, that's just part of my job. Because we have to have discipline, meaning we have to teach the kids how to behave. Like, when they leave our school, when they go out into the world, is it appropriate to be jumping up and down on library tables? No, it is not. So we have to discipline them and teach them how to behave. And so there was one class in particular that was really rough a couple weeks ago. And I really fussed at them. Like, you know, just let them have it. Like, you're being disrespectful. You're being defiant. Like, this is not okay. And this is like a third grade class, I think. So, like, you know around like your eight-year-olds or so, eight, nine, somewhere like that. So it was about 15, eight or nine-year-olds. And, you know, I kind of really let them have it. And like, I walked them to their PE class that was next and they were all in the hallway and like, you know, their little heads were hanging down. And I was like, oh, maybe I took it too far. And then later that day, they start walking in with these notes. Like they've got these papers in their hands and they start handing them to me. And they are like, I'm sorry notes. They're apology notes. And some of the things that they've written in the notes were like, Mrs. Austin, I am sorry I yelled and jumped on the table. Will you please forgive me? (laughs) 
<laughs> and I was like, oh, these notes, they crack me up. Mrs. Austin, I will promise I will not yell or argue during library lessons anymore. Will you please forgive me? Like they all ended in, will you please forgive me? And I loved reading these little letters because the way that they described their behavior, I promise I will not be disrespectful of the library books anymore, Mrs. Austin. Will you please forgive me? And so, I mean, it was just precious. And of course I forgave them. I mean, they're kids. And so I walk into their classroom and, you know, very sternly was like, I appreciate your letters. I'm glad that you had a chance to think about your behavior and what you're going to do better next time. And I just want you all to know that I do forgive you and I still love you and I still want you to come visit me in the library. And so that was kind of a really fun moment, a little lighthearted moment, I guess, on forgiveness. But it was a really good example, I think, to those kids of, you know, seeing a grown up, you know, they ask for forgiveness and seeing a grown up come back in and say, yeah, it's okay. I still love you. You know, especially for these kids, I think some of them come from not very good backgrounds, maybe a lot of abuse and things like that. And they may not be used to an adult coming in saying, hey, it's okay. Yeah, you messed up, but I still love you. And so it was a really good moment, I think. Then going back into Come Follow Me, what did Paul teach Philemon about why he should forgive Onesimus? And are there messages to you in this epistle? Well, the one that kind of stood out to me was Philemon one twenty one, Having confidence in thy obedience, I wrote unto thee, knowing that thou wilt do more than I say. And I love that Paul had the confidence in Philemon's obedience. And I'm not sure if this is Paul saying, like, being earnest and sincere, like, I really do have confidence in you. Or is this him saying, like, I know you're going to do this, right? Like, I don't, I don't know what kind of tone Paul had to this letter. I would like to think that was a sincere and earnest and not just like, I have confidence you will do the right thing. You know, like that kind of teacher voice that, I don't know, I don't know what he had going on in this letter. But if it was an earnest, I do have confidence in thy obedience. To me, that says the Lord trusts in what I can do and he trusts me to keep following him. And that I need to trust him in allowing me to keep following him and giving me the strength I need to keep following him and to stay on the correct path. So that's really what stood out to me. All right, guys, thank you so much for hanging out with me this week. Thank you for sticking through my rant. Um, you know, Paul and I, yeah, we have a complicated relationship now. I used to, you know, think he was a scriptural superhero and I had, you know, nothing but rose colored glasses for him. And after really studying him, I see a lot of the imperfections, I think. So I don't know. It's, it's made him more human, I guess, which is good in some ways. But then I also get really mad at him in other ways, um, as you can see from the episode today. So thank you so much for hanging out with me. I cannot wait for next week when we talk about General Conference. It's already started here as I'm recording, and it's awesome. I've loved the morning session so far. So I'll see you guys next week when we talk about General Conference. Love you guys. Bye, y'all. The Savior Said is not an official product or endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. All comments and opinions are my own personal opinions and not representative of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The music used in The Savior Said is Fireflies and Stardust by Kevin McLeod. The hymn quoted in the opening is Come Follow Me, lyrics by John Nicholson. The Come Follow Me curriculum can be found at comefollowme.churchofjesuschrist.org. For show notes, new episode alerts, and other fun and inspirational things, check out my Facebook page at facebook.com slash thesaviorsaid. Have a question or comment? Email me at thesaviorsaid at gmail.com. Content in The Savior Said is copyright protected. All rights are reserved. Thank you for listening.